friends, countrymen, lovers of all things design. This is Grits and Grids. everyone, this week I'm speaking with Paula Schur, who needs no introduction, but she is the designer and partner at Pentagram for those who maybe don't know. Paula, why don't you say hi and give a little bit of an introduction yourself. Hi, um, I'm Paula. Uh, I'm a designer. Uh, I live in New York City and I design identities for all sorts of organizations. If we're talking about food, I'm the designer of Shake Shack. Yeah, that's how most people know you, right? But even more recently, uh, Tender Greens. Tender Greens. And uh, I've done various food products over the year. If you go into a supermarket and you look at the first green sugar product, True Truvia, I designed that as well. Um, oh, nice. So I work in all different forms with it, but uh, food is not the basis of my business. I can't say that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Pentagram is just multidisciplinary and it's more about the thinking and the design execution, which is one of the things that I think most people admire most, right? Right. That's, that's the heart of the place. So and anyone who knows anything about you has probably listened to podcasts uh, that have gone uh, on your, you know, through your journey of uh, moving. Um, and I think a lot of folks probably know that your childhood maybe wasn't one that was ideal. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but there had to be a, a favorite food of yours that you can reminisce on. And uh, do you have one? And do you go back to it from time to time today? Actually, I do. Um, when I was an adolescent, there's a period I started putting on weight and also had uh, acne, not serious acne, but middle, middle, you know, teenage pimp. Mm-hmm. And my mother used to buy Hershey bars and she'd hide them from me because they were bad for me. So she'd hide them in the back behind something really tall in the pantry. And I knew they were there because she was, she was a chocolate junkie and so am I. And <laughs> I used to come home from school and she was working. She wasn't home yet. And I would rifle through the, to the back of the closet and I would <clears throat> find these Hershey bars and I would devour them. And they were a secret pleasure. And I have to say now, if I'm traveling, particularly if I'm in an airport with nothing to do, a Hershey bar comes to mind. I see the packaging. I love the packaging. I still love the taste of it. From To me, no matter how good a piece of chocolate I have, Hershey is real chocolate. The other stuff is wrong. <laughs> it's amazing to hear because uh, I grew up in a little town called York, Pennsylvania, which was about 30 minutes from Hershey. Right. Wow. So, you know, that You're was awesome. the treat, right? What's that? I remember driving through Hershey, Hershey, Pennsylvania when I was a kid and I thought I died and went to heaven. Right. Oh, man. And then then I, you know, lived there for a bit, not in Hershey, but just outside and uh, walking around with the smell of chocolate is it is a wonderland in a lot of ways. How has food and drink affected or inspired your work? So, you know, you worked on Tender Greens, Truvia. Uh, you know, the infamous Shake Shack at this point. But how has it influenced your other work? Does it play a role? Um, That's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it. I, you know, when I was in the record industry, I used to use close up of food shots uh, for other purposes, not, not to demonstrate food. But for example, there was this incredibly classic 
photo that we used uh, on the cover of, of uh, a Wilbert Longmire jazz album called Sunny Side Up. Uh, that was just this incredible photograph of fried eggs. And, you know, there's sort of the purity of the form of the thing. And for me, food was about form and about color, and uh, it was inspiring in that capacity. Uh, you know, I, I used to love Arcampaldo because he made characters out of food, so that I would say that was more of the impact. Uh, not so much, I wasn't really... Uh, seriously cooking probably until I was in my late thirties. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's when I'm really, you know, I, I'm a person who never had a fresh vegetable until I was 22. So I didn't even know I liked them. Um, but, but I began to learn to make things. And, um, and so food began to take on a different uh, mm-hmm. part of my life. Well, what's interesting is that sounds like it's the basis for uh, a top notch chef, right? <laughs> Is it's not just flavors, which obviously are very important, but it's the construction of the food. It's the the shapes, the colors, and the way it plays together as well. Yeah, it's amazing. I think food is gorgeous. I love a countertop with food lying on it. Um, I like when I'm cooking um, to sort of lay out the things aesthetically. I really don't like when when people unpack groceries and they keep the food in the package and it's lying around the table and you see the labels and things like that that really annoys me because the form mm-hmm. the form of the thing is beautiful and so that's why i like to to not cook in a rushed condition because you don't have time to really organize it in a way that it becomes part of that aesthetic experience mm-hmm so how much how much of that do you think uh, do you consider when you're approaching a food brand? Um, you know the actual form of the food. So Shake Shack, obviously burgers, Tender Greens. I think has a lot more to work with visually. Um, but is there a lot of that that you consider? Does that fuel your ideas there? No. <laughs> <Yeah. at all. laughs> no, I, I'm actually uh, not thinking about. It's not that I don't think about the food or the preparation of the food in re- in relationship to it. I'm thinking about how a consumer is going to understand and relate to something. Um, for example, Tender Greens is a great example because the uh, what was special about Tender Greens is not the food. It's the way though the food is great. It's the way the restaurant as a business is constructed. It's an organization of chefs. It's like a cooperative for chefs. They designed a, a series of a chain of restaurants that is, doesn't have the same food in each restaurant because each chef determines it. So it's really a, 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 like a, a stage for a chef to perform on, and the chef is the king. So the, the logo was designed – so it could serve as a digital sign and that different daily specials could be shown against these circular backgrounds. And uh, the logo is essentially a pot and a pan making a letter G photograph from the top, you know, like a, an overshot mm-hmm. of it. And that's what it symbolizes. So it's not actually about what's prepared. It's about the thinking behind the restaurant. So, you're, you're, I mean, suffice it to say you immerse yourself completely in, in the brand and more importantly, not just the baseline product, but everything you just described, do you crave the food when you're that deep in it? Well, it was really interesting. The thing with Tender Greens that was especially interesting, uh, and Shake Shack's a completely different story, but but mm-hmm. the Tender Greens, uh, I went out to visit them in Los Angeles, and they, you know, they're, they're about to move to New York, but they have a lot of stores on the West Coast. And um, 
they're all different uh, because, again, the chefs drive it, the architecture is different in different places, and they're sort of neighborhoodish. Like, mm-hmm. you get the flavor of the neighborhood when you go into the place. And I went into a store in West Hollywood for lunch with them, even though we, we had tastings of things in various restaurants. And in the West Hollywood place, um, you got your service in the front, like you pre-ordered. And then you went down the line to pick up your food. And when I went down the line, I had picked something from the menu. I went down and I saw the food. And I thought, what am I doing? Why am I picking? Why aren't I just grabbing this stuff? Why don't you just walk down along the uh, servery and pick what you want to eat? Which I'm mm-hmm. doing. And a pile of food came to the table because I picked everything. It looked so great. <laughs> it was amazing. It was amazing. It was a very inexpensive meal. But what you could have and the level of it was fantastic. Um, and I was really inspired by that. I, I, you know, I, I think that that happens to be a sensational model for a chain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very tough to execute. Uh, but Tender Greens has done it so well. I, I had the privilege of uh, seeing the one in Santa Monica. Um, and I think it may have been one of the originals that featured the new look, um, which is, you know, amazingly iconic even even right now. And despite what certain website forums may say, um, <laughs> we I, I thought it was brilliant. And it's definitely a beacon almost of um, clean clean eating and just good design. I think it, it's good for them because it is, it is a, as I said, it, it's, it, it's a vessel for which the chef plays, you know, and mm-hmm. that you can't, you can't begin to, you know, their, their former logo had lettuce on it. They're not a salad place. You know, I mean, they're, they are a place that is really based on whatever is fresh in the market that day and the chef's own interests so that you, there's not one symbol you can, designed for it that would be appropriate if you were going to signify food. It's not like Shake Shack where you can stick a burger on it and you're fine. Right. Um, right. It has to be, it has to be somewhat anonymous in that, in that manner. Um, but recognizable. It was a tricky, it was a tricky one to do. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned earlier that you didn't really start cooking until your thirties. Um, what, what did you start getting into? Did you start exploring like, you know, did you go deep into it and just start becoming a culinary master or are there some ones that you, that you love to make? Well, I, I think in my thirties, I mean, I was cooking, I was actually cooking younger. I used to make dinner. Uh, my mother was getting her master's degree and I made dinner for my father and I made the things that she made. I knew how to make what she made, but I mm-hmm. what changed in my thirties is, um, I began to understand how certain spices work. And I'm, I think I got, Good, not great, because I'm not. I wouldn't say I would say I'm a great cook, but I like cooking. Mm-hmm. I got good at things that I could make on the top of the stove in a pan. As a, mm-hmm. I was never a baker, and I don't like baking because I don't like measuring. And the thing I didn't like cooking in the beginning was I actually don't enjoy following recipes, which I find very rote and very boring. But mm-hmm. what I do like to do is find out what ingredients compose a thing and then then sort of improvise and uh for me that's the most fun so i can run a, a gamut of making dishes that are italian or french or spanish or portuguese or turkish even just by mm-hmm. you know messing around with spices and how i do it and i can do it without recipes you know i can make chicken any way you, you can name it i'm not good at asian food i haven't figured out the spices yet 
Yeah, yeah. Asians can get it can get really tough. Um, I think a lot of people lean on the Chinese five spice. I know myself, I have in the past. Um, and then there's always teriyaki. I mean, yeah. I think you put teriyaki oh, on yeah. anything, yeah. and you're going to win. That's sort of American, you know. You yeah, <laughs> you say it's Asian, but I, you know, I would like to learn it. I, I, I'm I'm less adept though. Get Mexican and South American cooking, um, mm-hmm. and 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 like I like that a lot as well. You know, and I consider that part of my palate. And it's fun, you know, and I really enjoy the chopping, the tasting, the experimenting a little bit, throwing in another ingredient I might not do, do and then correcting it if it's bad. But I, feel mm-hmm. like, I feel like it's always a nice sort of very fantastic, beautiful leisure activity. And I do it on weekends. Yeah, we have a joke in my house that if we're cooking an Italian dish and kind of experimenting, you, you always have pesto. So if you... uh if you mess it up royally, you can probably toss that in pesto and it'll be good. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that you, you have to know how to correct the mistakes. You have to, you know, like I put too much salt in and I put the sugar in and it balances each other out. You know, you know, you know what you're doing. There's certain, I'm trying to think of things that have really been disastrous with the, with the spice, but I actually can't because I've always found a way to correct it. Currently, mm-hmm. I find uh, problematic. I can mess that up. I can mess up curry yeah. or, or a Chinese spice. Right. Yeah. Curry can be quickly and uh, become quickly dangerous. Um, so if you had someone coming over that you wanted to impress, uh, what, do you have a meal in mind that you would cook? What would it be? I always make paella. I make a good paella. I make a great paella. I I would never leave your house. What? I would never leave your house. (laughs) (laughs) I love paella. It's fabulous. It's all chopping. I mean, it's just it's just ingredients and chopping. There's no better thing to make. And I do it all day. You know, I do seafood ones. I do meat ones. I do mixed ones. I do, you know, purely vegetarian ones. I do all of them. Yeah, it's a great delivery mechanism for all kinds of food and flavor, too. It's also really good if you have a lot of garbage in your refrigerator. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I like that you call it by, yeah, I just like end up calling it a hash. Um in, that's what ends up happening with my at my house at least. No, I do. I do it. Well, sometimes I do it where it's I do it with paella rice. Sometimes um, I do a risotto and it's sort of paella ish. Sometimes I do uh, jambalaya, um, mm-hmm. you know, which is more New Orleans, and I use Carolina rice and I, I make a roux and if I'm in the mood, and I'll, I'll mm-hmm. do that. Uh, but they're all essentially the same dish with different, you know, so the roux, the, the jambalaya. I use a lot of hot sauce, which is great. Mm-hmm. The classic Spanish paella, I think, is my favorite. Yeah, it's delicious. Kind of rice, you know, the uh, the Spanish rice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what what fuels your day? Are you a coffee, tea, energy drink? Just internal positive forces. I I've changed. Um, I used to be very nocturnal, and then I realized it was because I was drinking coffee at night. <laughs> Yeah. So I stop. I, I drink about three cups of coffee in the morning. I get up and I make a pot of French roast um, every morning. I always heat my milk because I I don't like cold milk in the coffee. It, it screws it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I take a big cup of coffee and I get in bed with my computer and I return emails and I read the New York Times and the, on the computer. And I mm-hmm. get up and have a second cup of coffee. And then I read the Washington Post. And then I get up and have a third cup of coffee. And I start looking around at real estate sites because I always do that. Then after Mm -hmm. I have my three cups of coffee, I get up, take a bath, and go to work. 
<laughs> I like it. So at work, do you, do you drink any more coffee or is it no coffee then? No coffee at work. No coffee for the rest of the day. That's, that's discipline. The morning fuel, it gets me up, I'm moving, and then the rest of the day I drink water. Yeah, I, I tend to be a coffee till about 2 p.m. 2 p.m. is my cutoff. How old are you? Uh, 37. Okay, you got about 10 more years of that, then you'll change. Then I'll change, yeah. <laughs> I, like I, it. Think the, uh, I think I was drinking coffee all the way through the afternoon and sometimes at dinner till I was, you know, about 45 and then it changed. Yeah. I'm not looking forward to it, man. I love the taste of coffee. I want to be able to drink it all the time. Well, it's the caffeine thing. It's not. Yeah. If the, if the, the caffeine starts keeping you up. And, and yeah. though I have to say, my husband is really, you know, pretty old now. He's, he's, he just only recently stopped drinking coffee. Well, we don't, we don't say old. We say vintage. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's my joke with my wife, at least. Uh, I'm like, I'm not getting old, babe. I'm just getting more vintage and vintage is really cool. <laughs> um, so let's hop into the middle segment here. It's something we call bang, Mary kill. Um, so what, what's your guilty pleasure food or drink? The stuff you want to bang down when no one's looking. I'll tell you what I always love doing when I'm flying. I really love a hot fudge sundae. I mean, oh yeah. From any particular brand. Uh, I don't care as long as the fudge is chocolate and hot and it's vanilla ice cream. I don't want any other toppings on it. I don't like the cherry whipped cream. I think it's a waste of time. I feel actually that all desserts, unless they're essentially hot fudge sundaes, like I'll like things like, um, Oh, eclairs or I like, uh, uh, what's a profiterole with chocolate mm-hmm. and things that are essentially, but I think all of those are sort of weak next to the pure black and whiteness of the hot fudge sundae. I love it. You said make it sound magical. I mean, and, and, the only place they're really reliable is like on an airplane. You know, like if you're flying, I do, American was very nice about it with hot fudge, but then they started messing around with butterscotch and they ruined it for me. Oh, yeah. Like, don't try to church it up, I'll man. I'll turn down the butterscotch sundae. It's not worth it. You might as well yeah. have a vanilla ice cream and forget it. <laughs> yeah, so it's really funny. I, I love vanilla ice cream. Just, like, just vanilla ice cream. And I know that's probably very boring of me, but a really good vanilla ice cream is just unstoppable. A, a good vanilla ice cream is one of the best things in the world. But not as good as a vanilla ice cream with a little bit of hot fudge. That's right. <laughs> um, so what food or drink would you essentially marry? The one, the one that you could eat every day and be happy? I, I'd be happy eating paella every day. Yeah. Well, I think that, that um, there are things that I eat continually that I really crave if I don't have it for a while. Like um, it, it, it's usually dinner, certain dinner foods. Like I love a really good roast chicken, roast mm-hmm. chicken, really crispy with rosemary, nothing better. I could always, I'm always happy to sit down and eat that for a dinner meal. I don't eat it for lunch, but I do love it for dinner. Um, I think mm-hmm. that um, every, when I'm in Europe, I find I really need a good hamburger. You know, this period of time where you just need the hamburger. Uh, oh yeah. And, uh, I'm thinking things I crave when I, you know, there's a moment where I just really want to have the thing. Uh, pasta is big on the list. I mean, I just, uh, you know, it, it, the biggest comfort food I think is is spaghetti bolognese. Mm-hmm. You know, that you just, you know, if it's cold and you're tired and you're warm, you just make yourself a big bowl of that. You're, you, it, it, it's it's just fantastic. It's, you know, it, it, it gets back to the macaroni and cheese syndrome, you know, sort of that kind of comfort food of, of things uh, like for me, it would be 
I, and I don't do this when anybody's around because it makes me so fat, but I love spaghetti carbonara. You know, if I can have a bowl of that, I'm in heaven. Right. Uh, That's funny. And pesto is, you know, in the summer, especially. I mean, I love pesto and I grow basil. I really like, I love, I love pesto. I can have that in any moment of time. It just fills in. Pasta is amazing that way. Um, right. You always feel good eating it. Yeah, it's delicious. Uh, you know, I, I tried to grow um, basil this summer, and it just did not work out well for me. I ended up feeding the bugs, unfortunately. City apartment. Well, so I'm technically in Atlanta City, but Atlanta's weird, where it's um, very neighborhoody. Um, so we we're like in a very wooded area with a bungalow, and my rosemary kills it. In fact, I, I have to like chop it almost every week. Uh, fig tree, fig tree works awesome, but the the basil just gets just annihilated by bugs. Weird. Okay. I, I don't know. I don't understand the climate in Atlanta. I guess, I, you know, like it's really easy to grow where I am, uh, you know, but it just doesn't have a long season because it, right. it gets cold. It gets, it becomes summer late and cold early. And the first thing to go is the basil where I, I, I still have rosemary a lot now. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I'll, I'll get it. I'll master it. <laughs> it's my goal for next year. Just go in the garden and grab a handful. If I don't have any food in the house, if I've got, all I need is, is some pine nuts and uh, garlic and the basil and I'm done. Right. Yeah. And you're mostly there. So uh, what, what food or drink would you remove off the face of the planet if you could? Food or drink. Oh, uh, I hate uni. I think okay. I hate uni is... I love Japanese food and I, I eat it all the time and I love sushi, but I, if there's uni on the plate, I don't want to, I don't even want the plate. And for those that don't know that that's a squid, right? That's eel. Oh, eel, eel. Yeah. It's oogie okay. and icky and slimy and disgusting and not your friend. <laughs> like that. That's great. Lips that touch uni will never touch mine. <laughs> that's perfect <laughs> Be, no noted for anyone else that was uh, planning on stealing a smooch no. um, <laughs> so let's hop into the grids part um, I think you know we have some questions in this section that I think are really important for a lot of designers we tend to glorify our profession so much especially when we're in scenarios like this but I think what a lot of people find is you know, th there are things that affect us even at the top of our game, like someone like you. So what is something that is always challenging for you when it comes to your profession? Um, I'm really mostly obsessed and excited with pushing myself in a different direction, like finding a way to reinvent what I do so it doesn't feel familiar. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, sort of stepping out into a territory where I don't necessarily have a huge amount of experience. Um, and uh, finding those projects that give me the opportunity to do that is, I, I'm fortunate that I can, uh, mm -hmm. and it's exciting when I do. So uh, are there any things that you come up against that you know you struggle through um, when it comes to, let's just say, an identity, an identity ask? Um. Really, they're usually the the mindset of, of of who I'm working with and what they're willing to accept and learn. Mm -hmm. uh, that if if I have a client who has an open point of view and uh, not trapped into a preconceived notion about how something should be, 
mm-hmm. then it's very exciting. Um, if I have a client that has a you know a very defined view of, of what the parameters are and, and how this thing should be uh, perceived or executed, then that's that's very boring, really. Um, sometimes I suffer through them. Sometimes I don't do the job. Right, right. So for for let's say for youth, um, I think one of my worries is a lot of a lot of kiddos listen to. Uh, the greats and they get it in their head that you, you always have to have this hard line and stern foundation. Um, But I think, you know, even when you're just finishing school, there's a lot of learning that goes on over the next, however many years. I mean, learning never stops, but um, I think it takes a while before you can be really hard lined with a client like that. Would you agree? Or is that something that you've just always had? Like where you're just like, this is the way it has to be. And you teach the client and educate the client. I learned, um, yeah, I learned so much when I was in the music business um, because I made so much work. So from the time I was about 24 to the time I was, say, 34, I made about a mile of record covers because uh, I had this responsibility to make 150 a year, and it was a staff job. And uh, I sometimes... The things were completely my idea. Sometimes I was taking dictation from a band and I was just setting up photo sessions and hiring stylists for people's hair and makeup. (laughs) I was an art director and I did a broad variety of things. And I learned that I could make work that I was proud of if I could persuade somebody to use it. So I spent Mm -hmm. the first 10 years of my life figuring out how I could persuade people to use things. And I learned about corporate politics that way. I learned about how people make decisions. I learned about people's fear of uh, making a decision. And it, it wasn't a question of drawing a hard line. It's a question of understanding how people see things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can explain it to them. Sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Yeah, so it sounds like you know you, you had education in design and art, but then another education happened, which was understanding humans and, and behavior. Absolutely. Especially humans and power structures. Yeah. And sometimes it seems like there aren't power structures and all of a sudden they, they appear out of nowhere. Well, I found what was interesting to me in the nineties was when I really started working with technology companies and, and they have a power structure, but you don't feel it because they, it seems like everybody's very nice. Everybody has an approval about everything. Everything is a committee. Everybody comes together. Everybody gets to have a nice say. But then at the end of this whole mission, gosh, there's somebody upstairs and there. It's actually just like any other corporation. <laughs> right. Right. The design by committee thing is um, it's always enigmatic to me just because for that very reason, you finally get everybody on the same page, you know, and then CEO comes down and says, I don't like it and then walks away. Yeah, exactly. That was my experience. And I felt, oh, this is the same thing as the other thing. It just has this other nice veneer. Right. <laughs> so um, when you design things, I think one of the things that I, I uh, heard you say, I believe it was with the, the live session with Debbie Millman uh, here in Atlanta, um, was that you really don't know if an identity is quote unquote good or bad, meaning successful or unsuccessful until it's been alive for a little while. Right. Um, yet we have such... Uh, we'll call it colorful and creative commentary on websites as soon as it's live. And then it's just, I mean, people just shred and I'll admit I've gotten involved a few times. Um, 
we'll just shred apart logo designs and redesigns, mostly from a subjective place. Um, how do you feel about that? I, I want your your commentary back. <laughs> well, it has to do with the, I mean, some of it I think must come out of frustration, but it has to do with the, the act of um, being able to respond. It doesn't have, to have anything to do with design. Has mm-hmm. to do with the, it has to do with some some form of power. It, it, what they're doing is equivalent. If you walked into a theater and the curtain went up and somebody stood up in the audience and yelled, this stinks. <laughs> it's sort of the same equivalency. I mean, they're not, they're not judging anything. They're making some, mm-hmm. some viewpoint about form out of any kind of context or any kind of understanding about what other subcomponents are, or how it works in a system or how you will come to see something. I mean, when you design a mark, I mean, I have a, I have identities in the universe that are 40 years old, 30 years old, mm-hmm. 25 years old. They're supposed to last. You don't have an instant. They're, they, they, they are built on um, years of understanding. If you take the, 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 the identities that everybody holds up as the beacons of all things, whether it's Nike or Apple uh, or iHeart New York, if you look at the if you look at what transpired over a period of time, you see this enormous evolution to the understanding of it. It was never like that out the door. You would have laughed at the Apple logo. What's that stupid thing with a rainbow and a bite? It's so dork. Mm-hmm. They do that, except for it's iconic now. And that you can't you you don't come out iconic. You become that way through recognition over a period of time, and it imbues. It Self with meaning in connection to whatever the thing is that it represents, and then then you you begin to have this incredible uh, emotional attachment to it, and it becomes part of your cultural landscape. You can't do that when the thing launches; that's impossible. Right. And any comment like that is just sort of stupid. I mean, there are things I hated where I looked at the form, and then about a year later, I thought well, that's actually quite good. Yeah. Yeah, especially as it really took hold, like you said. Do you think some of it stems from, um, I mean, let's face it, Pentagram is top of the game. And I think most folks look up to Pentagram um, as, as a, I hate to use the word trendsetters, but I think they're almost waiting for this amazing, you know, body shaking thing to come out. And so when something comes out that is perceived as, you know, incorrectly perceived as, oh, well, I could have done that. Um, it's almost they're disappointed, and that's maybe why there's like so much uh, maybe venom on those posts. Yeah, I don't think those people have enough to do. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like I mean, who goes there? I mean, I right. the, you you actually have the time to do that in the middle of your day. Right, right. It's uh, yeah. Like, shouldn't you be designing? <laughs> the thing is, the thing about that is that it's just sort of it's silly. Uh, pentagrams a target, but. You know the, the combination of my five year old could do that, or that sort of that sort of comment that's, that's become very frequent on those sorts of sites is mm-hmm. indicative that that the simplicity of something is exactly what makes it useful. That you have to when you're designing identities, you have to begin with something simple because it's got to do complicated things. If you, mm-hmm. if you begin with something very complex, you're you know how do you make promotion out of it? You know that it starts to become this this phenomenally difficult thing to work with. Um, you know, and and I can think of so many things that people you know write about or think are iconic now that got bashed on brand new. So you know, I mean, it, then years later you feel stupid. So 
Right. Right. Kind of like when I wrote an article about this newfangled device that was being released by a big tech company that was going to merge a phone with a music player. And I I predicted, Paula, that this was going to fail. Oh, really? Oops. (laughs) Yeah, I'm an idiot. What do you want? There are things, you know, that can succeed, uh, you know, and, and sometimes sometimes you design something and you hit a zeitgeist and the thing really flies. Like I think Shake Shack was that because there was nothing extraordinary about that design from my perspective. And I think if it was something that, for example, that thing was never on brand new because nobody, you know, it was like a free job I did for a, a, a hot dog, you know, a, a pan. Yeah. The conservancy, right? It was yeah. in, the, in the park. Um, right. But it became the association with it became, so it became iconic, you know, and, and there's no way to predict that that was going to happen. Yeah, it actually took me a while to have a burger at Shake Shack. I lived in New York for a few years, and it took me a while because I had to um, work up the patience to wait in line. So there was a couple times where I, you know, I'd walk by it almost every day, and I'm like, I just don't feel like waiting in line today. Um, so that I finally hit that one day, and then when it came to Atlanta, it was a big thing because we're, you know, mostly transplants down here. And well, it's sort of uh, the New York store was strange. I mean, I'm, I lived across the street from it. I can never have a burger there. The line was too long. After they, when they had their 10th anniversary, uh, Randy Ceruto, who's the, the president now, you know, it's its own chain, um, mm-hmm. invited me over to have, jump the line and have a burger. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, it was great. I sort of stood across the street from my office and ate a burger and it was delicious and it was great. And I went back to work. Yeah. I mean, they talk about feeling like a rock star. <laughs> 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 There's no other recognition bigger. I jumped the line and they didn't look happy. So yeah. that's right. You're like, but but I deserve this. I did I did this. <laughs> um, so if you could redesign any restaurant or beverage brand in the world, what would it be, and uh, what would you do to it? Oh, that's a that's a hard question. Um, mm-hmm. Trying to think of something. I mean, I can think of those things that I love, like the Hershey bar wrapper, but um, there are, the, I think I tend to ignore the things I hate. So they're not, they're not coming to, I mean, I think that all of um, the packaging of things like ham and cured meats and all that stuff are bad. And I think mm-hmm. somebody hasn't figured out how to do it yet. And I don't know if it's just marks and logos. So I would say it's marks, logos, presentation, and the package that, that, that every time I even buy bacon, which I love buying in a pa- packaging, this mm-hmm. can't be right. <laughs> yeah, especially something, I mean, you, you have to assume that there's been like, quote unquote, studies, which I'm not never a big fan of. Um, I, I believe that if you want people's opinion, you will get it in overflow. Um, but yeah, like now that you mentioned it, it's very underwhelming. And I think there's just a lot of emulation, like, you know, Oscar Meyer is doing it that way. So that's got to be right. I right. I think the factory equipment exists. You know, I think it's based on, it's based on the equipment. And then if you change the way you thought about packaging, it, you'd have to retool the, uh, for example, if you take, if you take all of them, whether it's Applegate or, or Oscar Meyer or uh, even fancier brands, they come in those stupid plastic things. So that if you have, if you take four pieces of bacon out of the package, you really don't have a good way to store it after you put it back in. You know, so you can't reuse mm-hmm. it. So you got to stick it in some kind of baggie or something, and it never really sits right. And it seems like it needs a, a kind of a, 
a box that is capable of air tightness, but you can you can leave, lay the bacon flat in the refrigerator as you reduce the amount of pieces you use. There's something wrong there. It's mm-hmm. but I think it's probably too expensive to change, and they do they do such a big volume on it that nobody wants to bother with it. That's my that's my favorite. Yeah, like the, the pain hasn't really hit yet, right? Like there's no uh, pain point to really shift that paradigm. Somebody, somebody's going to shift it. Somebody's going to come along. Somebody's going to listen to this podcast and say, hey, we can make a lot of money if we upscale the bacon. Yeah, I just want 10% of that project. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you recently put together, uh, would we call it an anthology, uh, a book yes. on your work? Um what was the impetus behind that, and, and how do you even begin to approach that? I didn't. It, well, I didn't do it. My uh, the, okay. the book is published by Unit Editions, um, who are composed of uh, three people, uh, Tony Brook, uh, his wife Trish Finnegan, and uh, the writer Adrian Shaughnessy. And Unit Editions mm-hmm. publishes all kinds of wonderful books. Some of them are compendiums of things like magazine covers or they'll uh, do a, a big book on a designer like Herb Ballon. And they've done mostly uh, compilations and dead people. And recently they decided to do living people. And uh, <laughs> they, they asked me if, if, if uh, I would be interested in having them design a book on my work. And uh, I was completely shocked, uh, totally flattered because their books are exquisite. They're really mm-hmm. designed. They're very expensive. They sell them exclusively online, and they have a very high-end, knowing design audience. And uh, so, uh, I met with Tony and Adrian, who I know well. And Adrian interviewed me for about six months, and Tony took my work and he edited it and figured out con- how the table of contents would work and put it together and made this amazing book. That's like amazing to me to even think about beginning to approach that. Um, just cause you know, there's hierarchy and Oh God, I would second to guess myself into the ground. So kudos to Tony and, and team for making that happen. Yeah. Um, it's a great book. I got to see it um, and kind of flip through it and I haven't bought one yet, but I'm going to. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, uh, he, I, he saw, he edited my work the way he wanted to. And I saw myself differently in that book. Um, also, uh, the only we where he had his most difficulty, I think, in doing it were in, in um, identity projects where you're showing a lot of work about one topic, and mm-hmm. there there need to be a kind of chronology with it. But when when there are more individual pieces, he had a very easy time just laying it out. Um, I mean, I really didn't touch it. Yeah, I mean, I, for it almost has to be like looking at a portrait, though, in a way, right? Like a port, an interpretive portrait of you. I haven't. I I feel. Um, Really, I, I wrote my own book uh, 12 years ago called Make It Bigger. And it was, a book, yeah. it was a book about working with clients. And I laid it out and I, I selected the book. And, I did all that. and I, it was 15 years since that book had come out. And when Tony and Adrian asked me to do it, I had been thinking that it's probably time since there's such a huge body of work that had happened since then. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really have the energy to do it. Um, and that they did it was great because the timing was right. But for me, what was great about having that book come out was I could look at it. I felt distance from it because I didn't do it, but I liked it. And mm-hmm. I remembered all the work in it and how I did that work. And now I can close the book, put it away and go on to something else. 
and that that was really wonderful because it was a way to separate myself from the work I've done in the past so I can go and make new work in the future. That's awesome. Uh, I highly suggest getting it. We'll have a link to it uh, in the show notes. So definitely go there, take a look at it. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to see or actually see Paula speak, I would highly suggest checking out one of her next uh, dates. Um, Paula, where can people find you on social media um, and, and places like that? Well, the Pentagram website is one place. Uh, there's a, a If you want to, to see all about me, there's a, a, a if you've seen the abstract documentary on Netflix, a 40 minute doc on, on me and the work. Uh, then there is uh, a number of, I mean, if you just sort of Google me, there are a number of lectures and talks that are all over the internet. You can go to YouTube and find them there. Yeah. I'll try to pick up a few and have it on the post on grits and grids uh, for sure. Um, and- I don't post things on Instagram and I, I don't, um, tweet uh pentagram does all that for me even though i have accounts right <laughs> don't do it because i i my company does it and i don't really it's not something i i'm big on to be honest with you it probably makes your life honestly a lot better <laughs> <laughs> just well, I'm actually, you know I'm very concerned about social media um I mean, I feel like Facebook, for example, is very, very much like suburbia, you know, because mm-hmm. you, you know, it's like a suburban neighborhood. If you live in one suburban neighborhood, everybody dresses the same. They all go to the same church. They all, you know, mm-hmm. you know everything about them, but, it, but you're supposed to conform. And that what Facebook does is it takes that sort of attitude where people find their groups and they're essentially conforming. So it, right. it is, it is not inclusive and broad. It's actually exclusive. Uh, when you're, when you're agitated and you're pushing back against something politically, then it's just a, another gripe fest like the, uh, uh, the blogosphere is on the, in the design community. That's right. really sad. Uh, well, and there's things that you, that, that people say, uh, you know, in those medias that they just wouldn't say to your face, you know, and I think it gets really rude really quick, you know? Well, we have a president who's doing that and that, that is a, uh, yeah, <laughs> you, see, you see, but but what is that? It's really the same behavior. It's baby behavior, and it's divisive. So yes. it is designed to be divisive, and it creates specific groups. So that you you when you divide people, you have less progress because you can't have dialogue. Less progress and uh, easier to control people in groups as well. well um, mm-hmm. You know which really, I think is the end goal of all governments, but <laughs> that's a whole different topic, right? Yeah. That's a topic for when I'm in New York and there's a happy hour. Okay. Yeah. we can. <laughs> Cause that's what you're supposed to do, right? You, you get, get a few drinks. You, you talk about politics and religion, the safest topics in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's safer to do it in person with over a few drinks than it is online. That's right. I agree. At least there's some camaraderie there. Um, Paula, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day and uh, sharing with us. And um, like I said, I'll have all the links and uh, just I can't thank you enough. I appreciate it. Well, I, I really had fun, except for you made me really hungry. <laughs> Good thing it's almost noon. So this is uh, this is the time to do it, right? Great. 
Once again, everyone, thank you for tuning in. Do follow us at Grits Grids. That's Grits Grids with no end in between on Instagram and Twitter. This podcast and the Grits and Grids blog is a passion project of Vigor, a restaurant and beverage branding and marketing firm based in Atlanta. Check us out at www.vigorbranding.com. And of course, we're all over social media. Until next week, stay hungry, stay thirsty, and be creative.